I'm so glad you're here and you have found the right place. The place where we talk about important issues and where we stretch our faith toward God. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're going to talk today about some important things, and we're going to develop a deeper confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I'm glad you've chosen to join us. I have fortified myself today with a nice hot cup of peppermint tea. If you don't have something that you can fortify yourself with, well, grab something quick, but keep listening. Keep listening. I'll keep started. You can go ahead and get something, grab your Bible, sit down someplace where you can be comfortable and, and take a look at the Bible as we go through it today. There are some really interesting things that we're going to discover out of this story that we're looking at today, because we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. That's one of those classic stories from the Bible. Even mentioning David and Bathsheba, a lot of people immediately have some idea of what we're talking about. Well, we want to do more than just have some idea. We want to take a closer look, a serious look at the story and at what we can learn about God learn about ourselves, and learn about this idea of forgiveness. You know, one of the compelling questions about the idea of forgiveness is, if I forgive the person who has offended me, or we can rightly say sinned against me, does that mean they get away with it? Does that let them off the hook so they're scot-free? Well, a lot of people struggle with that because they say, if I forgive them, where's the justice in that? And shouldn't there be justice because of what they did to hurt me or someone close to me? Shouldn't that wrong be made right? And if I forgive them, doesn't that just mean they've walked away and gotten away with it? Well, that's a very good question. And we're going to look at that in the context of this story of David and Bathsheba. So hang on, we're going to get there. But I want to make sure that we understand the, the, the scope of what's going on, make sure we, we all remember the story uh, and have at least the essential ideas down. We'll take a little bit more time to look at some of the details of the end of the story. But the story starts when it was springtime and the king sent the soldiers out to do battle. That was rather common time of year for battle. And so David sent commander of his army, Joab, out, took the soldiers with him, and they went out to do business on behalf of Israel. And so David was hanging out at the palace, doing what kings do, I suppose. And, and he was walking around on the roof of the palace. They were able to do that because of the way architecture was in those days. And he was just surveying things. And lo and behold, from the roof of the palace, he looked across the way And there on the roof of a nearby house was a woman bathing. And it was more than just any ordinary woman. This woman, the Bible describes, is very beautiful. And it got David's attention immediately. And so he wanted to know who this was and what's going on. And so he sent word for people to find out. And the report came back that that it was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who was on the nearby house. Well... Now that David knew that, he decided to send for her. So he sent word and had her brought to the palace. Well, we don't know all the details, but you can pretty well figure this out for yourself. 
One thing led to another and mm-hmm, they slept together and David sent her home. Well, you might be guessing or you might know the story that sure enough, word came back rather quickly to David that um, Bathsheba reported that she was now pregnant. So what started out as something bad enough is now rapidly descending into worse. So David sends for her husband, Uriah, sends word to Joab, says, send Uriah to me. Uriah arrives back at the palace and they have a conversation. David asks about the soldiers and how the battle is going and so forth. And then he sends Uriah home, says, go on home, take a break from the war. Well, Uriah leaves David's presence, but lo and behold, he did not go home. Bible tells us that he slept with the servants of the palace. He refused to go home. Well, that was reported to David and, and got David's attention because you can obviously tell what David was trying to do. He was trying to cover up what had happened between him and Bathsheba. Well, so he brings Uriah in and um, asks him about that and why he didn't go home and, and so forth. And, and Uriah says, well, how could I do that when Israel is in jeopardy on the battlefield and my commander and the men I serve with are out there at risk? How could I go home and enjoy the comforts of home when they're out there doing that? He says, I will not do such a thing. Well, that's, that's quite a lot of character on Joab's, or not, sorry, on Uriah's part, because he refused to enjoy the R&R that David had given him, because he realized that that wouldn't be right when all of his, his uh, fellow soldiers and the commander and Israel's army was in jeopardy. So David said, well, stay here one more day, and I'll send you back later. And David tried to entice him by giving him a big meal and trying to get him drunk. But same thing happened. Uriah refused to go home. He, he would not uh, let down his principles on that, uh, that account. And he refused to go home and enjoy the comforts of home. He refused to go home to his wife and without realizing it, play into David's plot to cover up his liaison with Bathsheba. Well, realizing that that was not going to happen, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander, and gave it to Uriah and said, deliver this to him. And in the letter, David says to Joab, put Uriah where there's the fiercest fighting. And when the battle's well underway, withdraw so that he'll be killed. Well, Joab did what he was commanded to do. They were in some fierce fighting. They withdrew and Joab was killed. Joab sent David a full account of what had happened as a report. You expect a commander to do that and told him about the loss they had had in the battle, but then ended it by saying, Uriah is dead. Well, that was intended to remind David that he had done what he asked. And for whatever reason, Joab had figured out that was important. And sure enough, David understood sent back word, assured Joab of his continuing support, and said very specifically, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. 
And he said all that to encourage Joab because Uriah had died. So you get the idea. This is the incident that's happened. David had badly misbehaved, resulted ultimately in the death of Uriah, essentially murder from David's hand. And so the story continues to unfold, and that's the part that we want to look at a little more carefully and in a little bit more detail. Well, as the story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11, it talks about what Uriah's wife did when she heard that her husband was dead. It says she mourned for him. Well, that would have been appropriate in those days. That was what was, was the cultural practice when a spouse died, when a husband died, Bathsheba would mourn for Uriah. It was probably about a seven-day period that she mourned. And the Bible says that at the end of that period, David, David brought her to his house. She became his wife, and she gave birth to a son. However, at the end of chapter 11, in verse 27, there is a sentence that rivets our attention, and it's this. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Well, that's the way the NIV puts it. Another English translation said it upset the Lord, but two other English translations, and I didn't survey all of them. I just surveyed the, these few to get a sense of it. And really to say displeased and upset may not be strong enough. Translators might argue over that, but this is what got my attention when these other English translations said, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. That is a strong statement. The Lord considered what David had done to be evil. We want to be careful not to be the recipients of that kind of conclusion from the Lord, don't we? And it had profound impact on David and David's household, what he had done. David tried to cover it up. Verse 25, he tried to encourage Joab that, well, these things happen. He didn't seem to take it as seriously as God did in the very next verse when the Lord saw it as evil. Evil. You know, we don't use that word evil often, but when we violate God's instructions about how to behave, we do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. It's very interesting in the context of what we talked about last week. When we talked about the, the uh, person that God describes as a fool in Psalm 14. That person was described as a fool because of their behavior, because they act as if there is no God. They do corrupt things, vile things. We talked about that. Or I suppose we could say evil deeds. They act like they don't have to be accountable to God. And so they just do what they do as though there is no God. And David acted that way in this case. He acted as if there was no God, no accountability. But as we'll see, as it unfolds, as the story continues on, we'll see that God did hold him accountable. Yes, without a doubt, David did what 
the foolish people of Psalm 14 are described as doing. David abused his power. He put himself first. He wanted what he wanted, and he was determined to have it, and he did. He didn't care about the consequences to anyone else. He didn't care about Bathsheba, maybe what she thought, wanted. He didn't care about Uriah. That didn't matter. He was going to have what he wanted, and he set about doing it. He acted the way the foolish man is described in Psalm 14. It's a stunning reversal for David, who has been a paragon of of virtue up to this point in the Bible, who has acted for God in so many positive and, and commendable ways. But now, now we see a very different behavior, and that different behavior changes everything. It's really quite astounding, the impact that this one terribly unwise evil act had on David, his family, and the kingdom that he was given to rule and reign over, the kingdom that the Lord gave him, who anointed him king. It's stunning. So let's explore what happened now. Well, we pick up the story nine months later because we know that Bathsheba had been pregnant and had given birth to a baby, given birth to a son. And along comes God's prophet. Now, people don't always like to see the prophets coming, but um, along comes this prophet, and he has a message for David. It's not just that he has a message for David. It's really fascinating because in chapter 12, verse 1, it's very clear that the Lord sent the prophet. The prophet's name was Nathan. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He didn't just show up because he happened to be making his rounds. It was very intentional that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Shouldn't miss that. And he had a message for David, and he had the message in the form of a story. Now, it's real interesting to me the way Bible stories can help us understand things. This story of David and Bathsheba is helping us understand some things. Well, Nathan the prophet comes to David and begins to, began to unfold this story to David and tell him the story to make his point. The story is a relatively simple one, pretty obvious for us to understand, and David seemed to catch on pretty quickly too, at least in part. But the story was about two men, one rich man and one poor man. As Nathan describes it, the rich man had large flocks and large herds. He was a very wealthy man, had plenty of livestock. And a lot of times in those days, wealth was measured by the size of one's flocks and herds. On the other hand, the poor man had only one small ewe lamb. The poor man had bought this lamb and had raised her. The lamb was like a child to him. Now, some of us understand that because we have pets that are kind of like children to us. So we get the idea of the, of the importance of this lamb, the affection that the man had for the lamb, the, um, the value the man placed on that lamb. As Nathan continues the story, he says that the lamb ate food from the 
meager food the poor man had. He shared his food with the lamb. Even says that the lamb drank from the poor man's cup and even slept in his arms. Indeed, the story unfolds and this lamb that the poor man had was like a daughter to him, like a daughter to him. Well, a traveler happened by to visit the rich man. And as a result, he had certain hospitality obligations and he wanted to provide a meal for his guest. But the rich man didn't want to take one of his own animals. I mean, remember he had large flocks and herds, he had plenty, but he didn't want to take one of his animals for a meal. So he took the poor man's lamb to prepare a meal for his guest. At this point in the story, David responds with absolute fury. He is enraged at the rich man for what he did. And he makes a, a strong and bold statement that expresses just how strongly he felt. He proclaimed with absolute certainty that the man should die for his deeds. Now, that was an obvious overstatement, but it gives us an idea of how David responded. He saw the injustice had, had taken place. He understood what had happened. Well, he later went on to say that the rich man should repay the poor man with four lambs, and that was the, the appropriate penalty. That was consistent with the commandment from Exodus 22.1, that when someone stole another person's sheep, they were to, to make restitution, to restore it, to make it right by returning four sheep to the person for the one they had stolen. So David did get that right, and part of the way we need to understand the story is that kings in those days were expected to render wise judgment. So when something came before them, and this story would have been exactly like that. Remember, David didn't know that it was a parable. And so he would have been expected to render the wise judgment that kings are supposed to have. And so David rightly judges the rich man was very wrong in this story and, and needed to be corrected. But it's also interesting that David wasn't wise enough to see himself in the story. So no sooner had David come to the conclusion that the rich man should die and then back down to, get, to give more sense to it and say he sh should give him the poor man four lambs, then Nathan turned to David and said to him, it's you. You are the rich man. David began to understand. David began to see that no one is above the law of God. Everyone is responsible for their behavior. And Nathan goes on to give him more words from the Lord. The Lord said through Nathan to David, I anointed you king. Now, that's a pretty big deal. Only one person king and, and God chose him. I anointed you king. God goes on, I rescued you from Saul. And that's true, too, because Saul made repeated attempts to kill David. So not only was he anointed king, but, but God rescued David from Saul. He goes on. God says, I gave you his house, referring to Saul's house. I gave you Saul's house, and I gave you his wives. Now, that's interesting. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But it is true. That's what happened. He, he was anointed king, rescued from Saul. God gave him Saul's house. He became king. God gave him Saul's wives. 
He goes on, God does, to say, I gave you Israel and Judah, the whole nation. And, and here's a really stunning statement from God. God says this to David, and if you had wanted more, I would have given you more. You know, it gives us pause to say, well, what more could he have wanted? But nonetheless, that's what God said. If you had wanted more, I would have given you more. Well, of course, David's misbehavior with Bathsheba indicated that he wanted more. He wanted the wrong more. So let's just kind of reflect on that now a little bit. Anointed king, rescued from Saul, was given the gift of Saul's house and the gift of his wives, the gift of the whole nation. God had been more than generous with him. Now, now our sensitivities might wonder, well, what's going on here when it says God gave David Saul's wives? Well, likely we should understand that this way. In ancient times, and the Bible is unflinching about all of the things that go on, it tells us the truth about how things were. It doesn't hide David's story from us. It doesn't hide any aspect of the story from us, including this idea of many wives. And what happened in those days was there was a royal harem that was the king's harem uh, and the king's responsibility. So when a new king came to the throne, that king then became the, the steward of that harem. The harem went with the king, in other words. So when God says, I gave you Saul's wives, it means I gave you the royal harem. That was part of the trappings of office. And so now that became his responsibility. And the harem also recognized or played a role in diplomatic relationships because there were relationships established through these royal marriages. And so David would marry a wife, and that would establish a connection with another group of people. And so that was kept together. And that was one of the ways that diplomacy functioned in those days. Seems a little odd to us. I get that. And, and we also need to understand that the harem was not considered family. It was considered state property. And it was supporting the, the state allegiances, those state connections that I mentioned with the diplomacy. And all of that became David's by virtue of God making him king, God anointing him king, preserving his life. So God gave him all of that by virtue of the office of king. And so then there's a, there's a compelling question. Ask of David, you got all of this, and I would have given you more. Why did you despise the Lord's command and do evil? Why did you kill Uriah? Why did you take his wife? Right away, God says there will be consequences to that. He says the sword will never leave your house. David had been involved in a lot of battles, a lot of warfare to take care of the people and to do what God had asked him to do. But now God says the sword will never leave your house house because, and this is what, this is the way God put it. He said to David, you despised me. You took Uriah's wife. Now it's very interesting that God makes that plain that David took when God had said earlier, I would have given you more, but God was not happy that David took and did not respect what God had said were the limits of behavior. The Lord goes on. 
Not only did he say the sword will never leave your house, but I am bringing disaster on you from your own family. Now think about that. Disaster on David from his own family. What could be worse? We want our families to, to be families, for crying out loud, to care for each other, support each other. But now God says, I'm bringing disaster on you from your own family. Specifically, God says, I will give your wives to another while you watch. Oh, that's pretty serious. God says, he, this other person that he doesn't name here, he will sleep with them in broad daylight. In other words, for the world to see. God says to David, you acted secretly. I, the Lord, will do this openly. Well, to David's credit, he immediately acknowledged and said, I have sinned against the Lord. He immediately at least recognized what he had done. I suppose he could have responded differently and simply had Nathan killed and doubled down on what he had done. But no, he at least acknowledged the evil that he had done and repented, changed his life. Nathan assured David, he said, the Lord has taken away your sin you are not going to die. I'm not quite sure where they might have gotten the idea that the Lord would strike David down, although that wouldn't have been unprecedented. But Nathan did assure David that the Lord, and this is really interesting, the Lord who was so upset has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. We call that concept in our language the Lord forgave David, and he didn't have to die for it. The Lord didn't totally abandon David. Instead, he has taken away your sin. Remarkable statement. Remarkable statement. Well, this idea shows us the, the power of the parable. I mean, the parable illustrates so well, so obviously to all of us, the the problem of injustice. David did not act justly. He abused his power. And we talk about that sometimes amongst ourselves, don't we, about how people abuse their power. David abused his power. He could do what he did, and he did it, and he shouldn't have, but he did it. He took advantage of that power. He didn't care what else happened to anybody else. He had the power. He was going to do it. How often that happens in our day. Don't be blind or naive to that. A power is abused all the time all the time, in more ways than we could name if we were going to try to name them, and we're not. And it illustrates so well what some people think is that might makes right. And clearly David had the might, but it didn't make right. Now, some people think that might makes right. If I can do it and get away with it, uh, that makes it right because I win. The parable shows that that's not at all God's perspective. It also shows something really interesting about Bathsheba. Now, the name Bathsheba means daughter of seven or perhaps daughter of oaths, something like that. But here's the really interesting connection. The Hebrew word for daughter is bath, B-A-T, bath. And that word is the first syllable of the name Bathsheba. So the word for daughter, Bath, 
is the first syllable of the name Bathsheba. Now, clearly Bathsheba is badly treated here. She's recognized as Uriah's wife. She's mentioned in the Messianic genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, as a way to remind everybody she was Uriah's wife, and it, and it points toward her and values her. But did you notice that in the parable, it says that the poor man treated his lamb like a daughter? And then it comes along, and we have the name Bathsheba, who was badly treated by David, and it illustrates the connection that David took what was valuable to Uriah in the same way the rich man took what was so dear to the heart of the poor man. Really stunning, simple wordplay that tells us so much about the power of that story that Nathan told David. In some ways, the power of those parables speak to us in our day, those parables all through the Bible. Well, that's kind of a, an overview of the whole story, and, and we're going to take a look at some more detail of what God said to David and of the, of the consequences of, of what happened in this story, and they were not pretty at all. And we want to then get into answering the question, the important question. If we forgive someone, does that mean they get away with it? What is forgiveness all about? And let's dig a little deeper. Let's explore it a little more fully because we need to understand it and we need to forgive. So if you struggle with forgiveness, don't go away. We're going to talk about it and hopefully we're going to help you have confidence in God so that you will forgive. So take a break. We'll be right back. I'll see you then. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. All right, 
so glad you're still with us. We're back. I've had a couple of swallows of that peppermint tea I mentioned earlier, and I hope you have too. I hope you're ready to explore this a little bit more fully because we're going to get to the, the question of, of, of really prime importance. It's really something we need to we need to wrestle with. When we forgive someone, doesn't mean they get away with it. What's really going on with this concept of forgiveness as the Bible talks about it and as David experienced it? Because in our story, God said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. In other words, God forgave David. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, and we've been exploring this idea and other ideas from the story of David and Bathsheba, where David misbehaved. It resulted in all kinds of terrible things. It's a very ugly story, and the ugliness continued. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in terms of, of the consequences of David's behavior. Before we do that, I want to make sure that I give a shout out to my church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. They help us do these programs together, and they support what we do, and I'm grateful for that. And, and I should tell you that there are many people in our church that model excellence when it comes to forgiveness. As a, as a group, I have seen that our church does not hold a grudge, and that's really commendable. It's not true every place because people struggle with forgiveness. That's why we're talking about it. But I want to give a shout out to them and thank them for that. And, um, and hopefully we can all learn from each other's experience and God will help us develop confidence enough in him to actually forgive. So we're now faced with the question that David had done this terrible evil deed, and we're wrestling with what happens next. We know that Nathan said to David that God had forgiven him, or more precisely in the text, the Lord has taken away your sin. But we need to explore what else was going on. And so I just want to talk about that and a few perspectives on, on the consequences to David and what had happened so that we don't, we don't miss this and we don't gloss over the, the, real, the real power of what happened here. There were consequences to David. And, and we should remind ourselves right up front that David broke four of the Ten Commandments. One of the resources I consulted reminded us of that. I thought that was an excellent reminder. David committed adultery, murder. He was a liar. He tried to cover it up. And he was coveting what wasn't his, Uriah's wife. That's a serious set of, of violations. It's no wonder that God thought what he had done was evil. So we shouldn't forget that. We don't, want to, we don't want to downplay that. We don't want to put that aside just because the Lord forgave David. That's not the point at all. We need to, we need to see the story in all of its ugliness. We understand that, that David rightly pronounced that the rich man, the, the fictional rich man of the story, needed to restore the poor man's loss by giving him four sheep. It's also interesting to note that David over the course of events that would unfold in his lifetime going forward, lost four sons to death. Interesting connection when a sheep would have been restored with four sheep. Now David lost four sons to death. As part of what happened, part of the consequence of this terrible act on his part. 
It's important to note that the judgment on David, God's judgment on David, the punishment followed the crime. See, David abused his power because he took what he could and what he wanted, and he just did it. And later in his life, he would see his power challenged by a serious rebellion from within his own household. That kind of follows the idea that God said the sword would not leave his household. So David abused power and he saw his power challenged. He took Uriah's wife, what was not his to take, and he would live to see his wives taken from him in that same rebellious challenge. The punishment matched the crime. It's also interesting, another person in looking at this suggested that there was a three-part judgment on David, and I thought this was helpful for us to think about. Um, it clearly said, and we talked about this earlier in the scriptures, that his household would be continually plagued by violence, and it was. There are four specific things we can look at of conflicts of violence that took place within David's household going forward. Ugly stuff, ugly stuff. We already said, and this was part two of the three-part judgment, that his wives were taken from him and publicly violated. Uh, that would have been a horrendous embarrassment to David uh, as part of that rebellion that I mentioned earlier. And of course, the third part of that was the child that he and Bathsheba conceived, died shortly after birth. So there were serious consequences to what David had done, and we should not overlook that. And maybe one of the most important, it certainly is a pivotal consequence, is that David was on the rise from the moment Samuel anointed David to be the king that would succeed Saul. David's fortunes got better and better. God was with him, and he was able to do great things for the nation and to honor God. From this moment, from the sin with Bathsheba, David's household and kingdom begins to decline. It's very easy to see that in the scriptures, where he was on his way up. And indeed, we read earlier, God said, and if you'd wanted more, I would have given you more. But from this time on, things got worse and worse and worse for David, his household, and his kingdom. And yet, in all of this, God still forgave David. So let's ask the question this way. Did David get away with it? <laughs> well, I, I hope you can quickly say, well, not really. God did not take his life, but he really didn't get away with it, did he? A lot of bad things happened, a lot of serious consequences. And the reason it's important for us to think about that is that one of the barriers to forgiveness for our forgiveness when someone does something to us is our sense of justice. Are we going to forgive them and just let them get away with it? Uh, that's a compelling question. I think it's what keeps some people from forgiving. Can't prove that. Maybe it keeps you from forgiving, but think about that. Well, let's be clear also about some other things. As we, ask, as we ask, consider that question, do they get away with it? Let's be clear about this. It does no good to try and minimize or deny the reality of the offense. I hope you've seen, I've been careful to point out just how bad the, the deed David did was, how evil it was. And when people do bad things to you, 
it does no good to try to minimize that. Some people occasionally try to minimize that and deny that it was really that bad because they're struggling with what to do about it. And usually it means they're struggling with the, with the pain of it, uh, the, the heartache of it, and the, the challenge that God gives to forgive. So let's be clear. As we consider this whole idea, it doesn't do any good to minimize it or deny it. It also, on the flip side of that, does no good to keep rehearsing the offense in our hearts. Because let's be clear, straight up, right up front, God expects us to forgive. Maybe most of us realize that, maybe not, but that, that's clear from the Bible. If, if you go no further than the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is clear. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God is calling us to forgive. So again, thinking about all this, did David get away with it? When we forgive, do our offenders get away with it? Now, the one thing we know about David is that, that God did not take his life. God spared his life, but there were consequences. There's no question David did not get away with it in the sense that we generally think. His life fell apart. Everything went downhill. Pre-Bathsheba, things were great. After all this, not so much. So thinking about us and, and our challenges, when we forgive, do our offenders get away with it? See, I, I will say again, I think that that question tends to quench forgiveness because we have this sense of justice. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And if we forgive them, then we're letting them get away with something and they really should be held to account because our understanding of justice, which comes from the Bible, comes from God, requires a penalty, a consequence. These wrongs need to be made right. So, so if we forgive, do our offenders just escape justice? Well, certainly when we forgive, forgiveness means that we refuse to hold the offense against them. And that's an important understanding of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the conscious decision that I will no longer hold this offense against the person who committed this deed against me. I will not hold it against them. I refuse to. So when we do that, when we refuse to hold it against them, the answer is, yes, they escape our justice. So did they get away with it? In a certain sense, you'd have to say yes, because we have refused to hold it against them. And the reason we have refused is because God has called us to forgive. And we obey God by forgiving. We forgive trespasses in the same way we ask God to forgive us. And so, yes, in a, that sense, they get away with it because we are not going to be the person, the people, to hold them accountable. But do people really get away with it? Now, I think we have a really important clue that sometimes we overlook, and, I, and I, I need to make sure we get through this so that we, so we grasp just really the significance of what God is saying to us here. Uh, it it's really, really does make a big difference. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, right after Nathan tells David the story of the rich man and the poor man, 
David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's something we need to remember. All sin is ultimately against the Lord because he alone established right and wrong. So remember, if somebody sins against you, that offense against you is first an offense against God himself. If someone betrays your trust and lies about you, they sinned against the Lord and you because it was the Lord that said, do not give false testimony or do not bear false witness against your neighbor. So they have sinned against the Lord and against you. And in the story of David's sin, this idea that David sinned before God is, is marvelously reinforced in Psalm 51. And I'd encourage you to take a moment to read Psalm 51 And maybe that can be your prayer if you're struggling with forgiving someone. Maybe that's the way for you to to help work through that in your heart, because it's really significant how David poured out his soul to God, poured out his heart to God when his sin was exposed. And Psalm 51 was David's response to God. So it's very important when we consider this idea, do people get away with it, to recognize that sin is an offense against God. So do they get away with it? Well, then the next question is, what has God done about sin? Because if they sinned against God, then God is the one to hold them accountable. And what God has done about sin is is this from John chapter 1, verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world classic verse, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, God took David's sin away. Nathan told him that. And here, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And don't miss the imagery of the Lamb. Remember, in Nathan's parable, the poor man's Lamb was like a daughter to him. And here, God treats Jesus as a dearly loved son. Remember, at Jesus' baptism, God said of Jesus, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You can see the connection here. You can understand what's going on, and you can begin to get the the imagery of the Bible. Let let your imagination kind of soak in that a little bit. And then that most famous of verses from John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And you see, God came to save, in the person of Jesus, the world from all sin. All sin. So Isaiah, when speaking of the coming of Messiah, said, We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him, referring to Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. That means all sin was laid on Jesus. And we shouldn't forget that. We need to remind ourselves. It was our sins, you know, as good as we think we might be, we stand condemned before God. Our sins until we repent. All sin means the sins against us. And what happened was when Jesus went to the cross and took on himself the sin of the world, as described by Isaiah, that meant our personal sins, the things that we've done that we shouldn't have done, and the sins that people have committed against us. All sin is pretty inclusive. It means all. So the question is then, 
do we get away with sin? Well, not entirely, because sin is bad for us. That's why God says don't do it. It has its consequences. And, and physically, we all die one day. And death entered the world when sin entered the world. So there's that consequence. Does anyone ever get away with sin? Well, sin is bad for all sinners. That's why God says don't sin. So, so we need to understand that it's, it's a bad thing, and we need to avoid it. It has consequences. It has consequences for us when we do what we shouldn't, and it had consequences for Jesus, the Lamb of God. But see, God realized that, that something had to be done to make the wrongs of sin right. And Jesus died for sin, and in dying for sin, he atoned for our sin, for all sin. He died so that it would be possible for us to be forgiven. God forgives, and we escape the penalty that results from sin because the penalty shifted to Jesus. See, it wasn't as though we got away with it. It's as though someone else took the responsibility for it. See, and that's, that's how we need to think about the people who sin against us. They, they also sinned against God, and God holds them responsible for that because fundamentally, foundationally, when we sin, we sin against God. But God didn't stop with that. He offers to handle the problem, the justice of the situation, the resolution of the problem. And he asked us to forgive our offenders and to trust him to make the wrongs right. Do you trust God enough to forgive? Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It's an important thing for us to think about. Do we trust God enough to believe him when he says we need to forgive? and trust him enough to handle the justice of the situation. See, we forgive our offenders and we say to them and to God, I am not going to make them answer to me. Oh, we might want to make them answer to us. I get that. A whole lot of us would say, yeah, I sure would like to get them. I'd take care of them. I, I get that. But that's not what God is asking us to do. He's asking us to trust him enough to forgive our offenders, and trust him enough that he will handle the justice of the situation. He will make the wrongs right. And that started at the cross when Jesus took on himself the sin of the world. We should not minimize that. In fact, I think we, we have kind of forgotten that when it comes to this idea of forgiveness. But I also think we ought to realize that, that there's a tremendous relief for God to say to us, forgive and trust me to take care of it because that's what we're doing because sin is ultimately against god it's a tremendous relief i can release all of the energy of unforgiveness to god all of the things that eat away at me and all of the things that eat away at you and some of you i'm pretty sure i've never met most of you but i know some of you have been letting things eat away at you and god is saying there's relief for that god is saying i've taken care of that it's not your problem. Will you trust me enough to take care of it? Now, I know, 
I know it feels like you're letting somebody get away with something they shouldn't get away with. But can you trust God enough that that's not true? That God is just asking you, will you let him give you relief from that anxiety, from that internal pressure, and forgive so that you can walk in freedom and faithfulness before God? See, it's a very significant responsibility God gives us to forgive the people that offend us. Very, very significant for us, for them, for the sake of justice. See, in the very same Lord's Prayer that I mentioned earlier from Matthew, in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 6, it says, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But this next is chilling. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's heavy, isn't it? That's real heavy. But we need to we need to let that sink in a little bit. Because in so many ways, the, the real issue, it seems, coming out of this story and, and really in, in, in a bigger sense as well, in so many ways, the real issue is, do we trust God enough to forgive? Do we trust him enough that we know he will take care of it and he will make the wrongs right? And do we have enough recognition that sin is a problem for everyone? And just as I need God's forgiveness, so does my offender need God's forgiveness. And are we willing to, to open our hearts to the heart of God and say, God was willing to take on himself at the cross the horror of sin so that we did not have to ultimately bear the consequence of that. So we could be forgiven, and that includes the people who have sinned against us. See, holding people responsible for sin really is God's problem. Now, I know it feels like our problem because they did it to us. I, I get that. But remember, in the scheme of things, all sin is committed against God. Remember, David said, I've sinned against the Lord. And we need to think that, that it's important for us not to usurp the role of Jesus in handling sin. That's why he came. And he was the only one who could handle it. That's why God gave his only son to save the world so that Jesus could pay that penalty and allow justice to rule and to reign in the kingdom of God. And we don't want to usurp the role of Jesus and try to exact justice. He took care of that. He paid the penalty, and he earned the privilege of handling sinners. And we can trust him to do that, can't we? See, faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Is God trustworthy that we can trust him to handle the people who have sinned against us? And are we willing to lay that down and give it to God so that we can walk in freedom and faithfulness and newness of life? Would you do that today and let the weight of that? Some of you have carried that for years, and you didn't know what to do. And it always felt like just forgiving was just not right. They'd get away with it. 
But God is saying, will you trust me? Will you trust Jesus who earned the privilege of handling sinners? And as you do that, would you, would you thank the Lord? And I don't say this lightly, and I don't say this just because it fits, but I say, can you join me in thanking the Lord that there's grace even enough for me? We sometimes say this, and it may have become a bit of a cliche, but I don't mean it that way at all, and I hope you don't either. But can you say with me, there but by the grace of God go I? I could be that sinner that God is having to handle. But thankfully, there was grace for me. And friends, there is mountains of grace if we will simply trust God enough to forgive. Because we want to stretch toward God's high calling because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I pray for you right now that God would set you free from all of that so you could know Him in a way you never had before. Amen. Amen.